0: If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 9 is where we're going to spend our time together this morning. Uh, we're going to look at, focus our time in on verses 9 through 15, finishing out the paragraph that we, uh, that we started last week here in 2 Corinthians 9. As you turn there, uh, I wonder how you would, you don't have to say it out loud or anything, but I wonder how you would describe the, the cultural moment that we live in. How would you describe our world? How would you describe our culture today? Now, there's any number of words that might come to mind. There's any number of things that you could say, any number of ways uh, that you, you could uh, define or describe our world, that you could define or describe our culture. A, a few of those uh, come to, to mind. The, the first one that I think of is divided. The, the, we, we live in a culture, we live in a moment uh, where division seems to be rampant. Uh, another one is easily offended, right? The people are easily offended by, uh, by different things. Now, there are bright spots to be sure. We, we can look and see how the Lord is working and see how the Lord is moving and the way that he's, uh, the things that he seems to be doing around the world, and we can be encouraged by those things. But there's any number of ways that we can describe what's happening in our world, and and many of them, maybe maybe even most of them, would not be pleasant. They wouldn't be ways that we we want to be described. You know, there are certain things that uh, that we would love to be true of our culture. There would love to be true of our nation. We would love to be true of where we live, and uh, many of those things are things that we want to be true of ourselves as well. You know, we could describe or define in any number of ways, but I one word that I don't think that most would use to define or to describe our culture is generous. I think a lot of people want to be generous, but I don't know that that's a word that comes to mind first. And when we talk about generosity, we're not just talking about money. We're talking about time. We're talking about abilities. We're talking about other resources, just generosity in general. I think that many of us want to be generous. Maybe some of us even call ourselves generous, and, and maybe we are. But what we have to understand is that, that real generosity, that it doesn't happen on accident, that we don't drift into being generous. No one wakes up one day and says, oh my, I'm generous all of a sudden. Like that—that that, that doesn't happen. Or no, no, generosity is intentional, and real generosity doesn't happen apart from God's work in our lives. Real generosity doesn't happen apart from God's work in our hearts. In fact, that's what we, we see in this passage we're looking at this morning is that our generosity is really God's work. That's, our generosity is God's work. We, we see this here in 2 Corinthians 9. Now last week we looked at verses 6, 7, and 8. This week we're going to look at verses 9 through 15. So uh, if you have a Bible, look with me. Uh, Here we'll have the verses on the screen. If you don't have a Bible, if you don't have a Bible and would like a Bible, uh, we've got Bibles at our Next Steps banners we would love to put in your hands, and that could be yours, just a gift from us to you. But let me invite you to stand as we honor the reading of God's perfect and precious and inspired word, we're going to start in verse 6 so that we get the whole uh, the whole context here. Starting in verse 6, the Holy Spirit says to us this. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency, In all things, at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he is distributed freely, he is given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes through your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. This is God's word. You can be seated. Uh, Would you go to the Lord in prayer with me? Father, we are grateful that you work. Lord, we're grateful for your work in our hearts, in our lives, in our church. And Father, we we pray this morning that you would move in us. Father, we pray this morning that you would move among us, Lord, that, that we would walk out of this place knowing you and loving you and loving your gospel more than we did when we came in. And so, Father, we pray this and we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Our generosity is indeed God's work. And as we we look at this passage this morning, we're going to see a couple ways that we see God working in our giving, God working in our generosity. And the first one is this, is that God works so that we can give. God works so that we can give. Now, here's the good news in this. God works. God moves. He is active. That in our world, in our church, in our culture, wherever it may be, there is no place on planet earth where God is not moving. There's no place on planet earth where God is not active. It's not that he's just active here on Sunday mornings or he's just active in this town or this city or this community at this point. No, God is always working all of the time. There's never a time where God isn't up to something. You know, oftentimes as parents of small children, uh, we get the most concerned when we hear the least, right? When upstairs gets quiet, we assume that someone has been injured, right? Someone has been hurt because it seems like our kids are always active. Well, it doesn't just seem like God is always active. He is always active. Now, we're picking up here in the middle of this paragraph. Now, different translations will divide this paragraph in different ways. Some translations, verses 6 through 15, are all one paragraph. Some translations, verses 6 through 15, are two paragraphs, and they divide it at one verse. Other translations, it's two paragraphs. They divide it at a different verse. The point is not to see, the well, this one paragraph or two paragraphs or any of that. Instead, the point is to understand, what is Paul saying? What is the point that Paul is making? Last week, we saw that God works in our sacrifice, that as we sacrifice, that God works, and he's active, and he's moving. And so now, what Paul's going to do in the rest of this passage is he's going to apply God's work to our giving. He's going to help us see how is it that God works in our giving. Now, look at verse 9. He's going he's to drive this point home. He he quotes here from the Old Testament. He says, as it is written, he is distributed freely. He is given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Now, whenever we read that verse, it's obvious who that verse is talking about, right? He's talking about God, or so we think. In fact, if you were to jump back to Psalm 112 verse 9, what you would find is that this verse actually isn't talking about God. This verse is talking about the righteous man. This verse is talking about the man who is experienced and who is encountered and who has tasted God's blessing. And if you read it in context of this passage, if you look back at verse 8, it says, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. And what does it look like to abound in every good work? Well, we see it in verse 9. This righteous man distributes freely. He gives to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. See, this verse isn't talking about God. Instead, it's talking about the one who trusts in him. It's talking about the fruit of God's work. See, when God works, then fruit appears, right? Things happen. We see him moving. We see him active. We see him working. Now in verse 10, he's going he's to help us understand what this looks like a little bit more. Look at verse 10. He says, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. He underlines this idea of that there's work to be done if we are to live a generous life and that work that is to be done, that it's it's not us working so that we can be generous, but it's God working to make us generous and to provide what we need to be generous with. That the seeds of generosity that we might sow that they come from the Lord. He supplies them. In fact, in this verse where it says he who supplies seed to the sower, that word supplies, it's this idea of, of something being given as a gift. In other words, God gives us exactly what we need to be obedient to him. He gives us seed to sow. Well, this passage says he gives us bread to eat. And then he multiplies our effort. He, he multiplies, he uses, he blesses our work. Now Paul here, he leaves no doubt that what we have and what we receive is a, a blessing from God to be used by others. Look with me here at verse 11. He says, You will be enriched in every way, to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. He says, you, you will be enriched. No, notice that he doesn't say that you will make yourself rich. Now, this is written in the passive voice. That this is something that happens to them. He says, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. Well, we're saying that, that I've blessed you to be a blessing to others. Now, you might want to circle or highlight or underline that phrase, every way, that you will be enriched in every way, to be generous in every way. This goes back to the idea that that real generosity doesn't stop at being generous with your finances. In fact, I think that the easiest place to be generous, typically, is with your finances. That, That... it's easy, well, I'm going I'm to give some money here, or I'm going I'm to give some money there, I'm going I'm to give this, or I'm going to give that. It's far more difficult to be generous with your time. Maybe you've seen the bumper sticker on the back of the truck that says, yes, this is my truck, no, I will not help you move. Right, because we, we understand right that, that time is valuable. You know, time is money. You know, time is far more valuable than money because I can make more money, but I can't get any more time back. But What Paul says here is he says, you've been blessed to be generous in every way. Not in this way or that way or those ways. No, in every way. You've been blessed. You have been enriched. You have received blessing from God to be a blessing, to be generous in every way. I wonder if we live our lives like that. Do we live our lives looking for opportunities and looking for ways and looking for places to be generous in all of those ways and in all of those places? See, God does the work to bless us, to, to enrich us for a purpose, and it's for the sake of others. What Paul is saying here is, you know, look, God has equipped the Corinthians. He has equipped you and I to be generous. There's, there's an important point here, that God blesses us to be a blessing. He doesn't give us resources to hoard for ourselves. He doesn't give us time to, to just hoard for ourselves. No, our blessings are to be stewarded to bless and to serve others. And notice what the result is here in verse 11. The result in verse 11 is not that people would see how generous you are and celebrate you. The result in verse 11 is not that people would see how generous the church at Corinth was and say, hey, we need to be like the church at Corinth. Now, what's the result in verse 11? That through this generosity, it'll produce thanksgiving to God. That people would see our generosity. And they, they would think and they would know and they would see that our God is great. That our God is generous. That our God is good. He's the source of the blessing, so he's the one who deserves the gratitude. In fact, it's one of the great purposes of our generosity. One of the, the great purposes of our giving is that others would be grateful to God. Look at verse 12. It says, for the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, so it's not just that it would meet the needs of the saints. The saints here are this church in Jerusalem that was struggling they're struggling financially, they were small, they were being persecuted. In verse 12, he says that it's the ministry of the service is not just supplying the needs of the saints, but it's also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. It says this ministry of service, that word service there, it's the, the same word used for sacrifices to God made in the temple in the Old Testament. It says this, this ministry of service has two purposes: to supply the needs of the saints and that it would result in great thanksgiving, abundant thanksgiving to God. What he's doing here is he's helping us see that God blesses us with what we can give, and then what he does is he gives us a desire to give. He blesses us, and then he gives us a desire to use it for his purposes and for his glory. What happens, though, is sometimes there's a disconnect. And maybe we recognize that God has blessed us But then we fail to see that he's blessed us to be a blessing. Or maybe we miss it all together and we think that all that I have is because of how hard I've worked. And all that I have belongs to me. I'm constantly looking for ways to surprise my wife, ways to be a better husband. And several years ago, someone alerted me to the deal that Publix has on flowers. And so if you uh, if you've know, don't know about this, let me, Valentine's Day is just four short months away. Uh, and so Publix, you can get bouquets of flowers, three for $12, one for four, right? Now I have two daughters, so I'm paying $12 now uh, for these flowers. But I, I would go, and typically I was at Publix to get a Publix sub, because that's how the Lord loves us and wants good things for us. I I'd, I'd take a bite, and I think like, your move, atheist, huh, what's up? Uh, but, but I i go into Publix typically to get something like that. And several years ago, I would go, and I, I would grab these bouquet of flowers, and I would take them home, and I, I would surprise Anna, and she would at least act surprised and act like she loved them, and they were the greatest flowers ever. And then as we started having kids, and our, our kids started getting older, what I started doing is I started including them. And so uh, we, would, we would go to Publix, and we would, we would get a bouquet of flowers, and we would take it home, and we would give them to Anna. And it started out where I would have the idea and I would get the flowers and then I would pay for the flowers and then I would hand them to the kids right before we walked in the door and then they would give them to Anna. Well, over the years, what has happened is I still have the idea to get the flowers. I go and I pick out the flowers. Most importantly, I pay for the flowers. Our kids don't think about the flowers until we're pulling into the driveway, and then the first thing they say is, give me the flowers, right? Because they want the credit, right? They want to take the flowers to mommy. They want to take the flowers inside, and typically they take them inside, and it goes something like this, mommy, I thought about you, and I thought you would like these, right? Uh, And I, I say, Anna, these kids are just like your people. They're liars, right? Like that, they are... That is not true. This is my idea, right? I want the credit, right? I did this. I picked out the flowers. I paid for the flowers. I bagged the flowers. I got the flowers here. These kids didn't do anything. I'm working through it. But you know, isn't that how we practice generosity so often? That we think, I worked for that. I planned for that. I earned that. That's mine. And yet what we see here is that everything that you and I think that we earned was given to us by a good God. In like fact, the Bible says, what do you have that you did not receive? Now, I'm not trying to say, well, you didn't work for anything that you have. I, I'm sure that you're a hard worker. But the only reason that you can work hard is because God has given you the ability to do it. And so now what he's done is he said he's invited us to take and to use what he's blessed us with, to, to use what he's given us. And he said, use it to bless others. And the chief way that we bless others is with the gospel of Jesus Christ. The reason that the Lord has blessed you, the reason the Lord has blessed me, the reason the Lord has blessed us is so that we could be that we would be used by him so that his glory would fill the earth. Did you know that's what Adam and Eve's original purpose was? Adam and Eve's original purpose, the prophets tell us this. Adam and Eve's original purpose was that they would, they would expand the garden so that God's glory would cover the dry ground the way the waters cover the sea. That's what you and I have been called to do. We've been called to sacrifice, to work, to give, to serve in such a way that God's glory would cover every square inch, every corner of the globe. See, God works so that we can give. He he provides what we give, and then he works in us so that we will want to give. But next we see this, that God works in our giving. He, He works in our giving. Our giving is ultimately about God. It's ultimately about He works. He, he uses us to accomplish what He wants to do. In this passage, we see God working in a couple ways. So uh, look at verse 13. We see God works first for His glory. In verse 13, by their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. Right? God works for His glory. Those who receive this gift that Paul's talking about here, they glorify God because the Corinthians had been obedient in their generosity, which had been fueled by the gospel. Their obedience comes from their confession of the gospel of Christ. According to Paul, the basis for our generosity must be the gospel. Have you ever Stop to consider what makes your generosity distinctly or uniquely Christian. Being generous is not not something that the believers, that Christians, have a corner on. In fact, one of the pillars of Islam is generosity, is giving. So so what makes our giving different from that giving? What's the gospel? See, our giving is to be gospel-fueled. We don't give hoping that God will love us based on what we give. We give because God already has loved us, and we give in response to that. Our, our Muslim neighbors, they give hoping that their God will love them. We give because He already has. And because He's already loved us, we are free to give sacrificially, knowing that He will always provide for us. We've talked about this idea of gospel-fueled giving. It's that because of the grace that we have received, we give in the same way. We, we give in response. It's not because of guilt. It's not because of duty, but it's because hearts, our hearts, have been changed by the gospel and made generous. See, when we submit our lives to Jesus, everything changes. When we submit our lives to Jesus, there's no part of our lives that Jesus leaves untouched. When he comes into the the house of your heart, the the home of your heart, and he starts cleaning up rooms, there's no room that we shut the door and say, Jesus, you can't go in there. Right, Jesus, this room is off limits. No, when we do that, Jesus kicks the door down. When we do that, Jesus comes in and he works and he he operates. And you know what he does? He disrupts things, but he always makes them better. He always makes them better. We submit our lives to Jesus, he he changes everything, and our lives change right along with it. Hopefully you know the name Frederick Douglass. Frederick Douglass was a, a freed slave he would go on to be a well-known abolitionist, a writer. In 1938, at 20 years old, he escaped from slavery in Maryland. And he, he left Maryland and he went north to New York City. And he got to New York City and he, he restarted his life as a, a freed man. Seven years after escaping slavery in 1945, Frederick Douglass would go on to write an autobiography just talking about the horrors of slavery. Hey, he, talked about the the blessing of freedom. Do you think that his life after freedom looked different than his life before freedom? You don't escape slavery to live like a slave. You escape slavery to live free. In the same way, Jesus doesn't save us from our sin to keep living in our sin. In fact, what Paul tells us in Romans 8 is that in the most real way possible, Jesus has freed us from slavery. He has freed us from slavery to sin. And instead, he has made us slaves to righteousness. He's changed our lives so that we would would walk in righteousness. He's changed our lives so that we would look like Jesus, so that we would give like Jesus, so that we would we would work for God's glory. We see in this verse that the, the first way that that God works in our giving is for His glory. But we see we see Him working in a second way. Look at verse fourteen. Verse fourteen, we pick up in the middle of this sentence. It says, "While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you, this." Those who are longing and praying for, this is the church at Jerusalem. He says, look, whenever they, when they receive this gift, they hear of your giving. What's going to happen is they're going to long for you and they're going to pray for you. What he's talking about here is he's talking about unity. Now here he's talking about unity without proximity. That Though they've never met, they're unified, they're united in love for one another. Maybe you have been a recipient of sacrifice or of generosity from someone that you have never met and you never will meet. Maybe you know this in a very real way. I think like organ transplants, different things like that. But you might say, well, no, I've I've never experienced that. And I would tell you, you're actually experiencing it right now. See, the, the reason that you and I can sit in this room right here, right now, is because of the sacrificial generosity of people who came generations before us. People who would never gather in this room, people who would never see our faces, people who, who would never get to celebrate a baptism on this property, people who would never get to see our students or our kids or, or this room filled, but they gave sacrificially because they knew that the gospel was worth it and because they loved their church and because Jesus loves the church. See, you and I, much like the church at Jerusalem, We are, in a very real way, benefits of sacrificial generosity from people who we will never meet. And so now what we have is you and I have the opportunity to stand where they stood and to be generous once again for people who we will never meet. People who we will never see, and yet in eternity, we will get to worship with them. In eternity, we will get to meet them. In eternity, we will get to see, we will get to know that that our sacrifice was worth it. See, here Paul's talking about unity without proximity. They've never met, but they're unified in love for one another. This is a mark that is always true of God's work. When God works, unity happens. In fact, I think that's really what chapters 8 and 9 are about. Chapters 8 and 9 of 2 Corinthians are primarily chapters about unity. See, if if the church at Corinth isn't unified, then God's mission is going to suffer in Jerusalem. If they're not unified in their love, if they're not unified in their giving, if they're not unified in their praying, then God's mission in Jerusalem is going to suffer. Well, the same is true today. If we fail to live unified as a church, God's mission in our community and in our world will suffer. There is nothing about a divided church that brings glory to God. There there is nothing about division. It's never God's will for a church to divide. It's His will for us to multiply. But it's never His will for us to divide. And see, when we're committed to the gospel, when we're committed to the mission, then what happens is is we don't have time to divide. Divide. We don't have time to worry about anything other than the fact that God is glorious and the gospel is good and people need to hear it. See, eternity is far too long, hell is far too real, and Jesus is far too good for us to be distracted by anything else, for us to be concerned about anything else. We've got to be united because the mission matters. And why does the mission matter? The mission matters because God's glory matters. Because Jesus is worthy of the worship of your neighbor. He's worthy of the worship of your kids and of your grandkids and of your aunts and your uncles and your grandparents and your great-grandparents and your parents and all of those things. But he's also worthy of the worship of the nations. He's worthy of the worship of the world. And so unity matters to the mission. Now what causes this unity? Something that's interesting is that if you, if you took some time and you, you wanted to kind of do a, a deep dive through Scripture, I'd encourage you to, to take Paul's letters and just read through them and notice how often he talks about unity. He brings unity up again and again and again. And what's interesting is the way that unity is found and the way unity is formed and the way unity is kept is always the same way. It's by the grace of God. See, in verse 14, he he says, they long for you and they pray for you. Why? Because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. That brings unity. See, churches divide when people domesticate God's grace. Churches divide when people get over God's grace, when they get used to God's grace. If we're going to continue to be united as we have been, then the only way that happens is by never getting over God's grace, by never getting over the gospel. Look at verse 15. Look at how Paul ends this. He says, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Thanks be to God for the gift that I I can't even put words around it. It's that great. It's that good. When you are consumed with God's grace, you don't have time for anything else. right? When you are consumed with God's grace, it is really hard to offend you. Because you recognize all of the grace that you have received. When you are consumed with God's grace, it is really hard to be anything but generous because of how generous God has been to you. When you are consumed with God's grace, everything is different. Everything changes. And so we've got to continue to fight to be consumed with God's grace by by preaching the gospel to ourselves, by reminding ourselves of the, the great need of the gospel in our own hearts and in our own lives. See, our generosity is is God's work. It's not our work, first and foremost. It is God's work, first and foremost. And we've been talking about this Imagine initiative over the last several weeks. And and what this is, is this is an opportunity for us to respond to God's work in our hearts. I've been praying about this day for months. I've been praying about this moment for months. And here's what my prayer has been, is that today would be an overflow and response of what God has done in our hearts. There would be an in response to what God has done in our lives. And so I hope that if you call Central Home, I hope that you are here and that you are ready to commit. Our goal is that 100% of our church family would commit to being a part of Imagine in the days ahead. Because I'm convinced that God is going to do some really great, some really exciting things. But I'm also convinced that it takes all of God's people to do God's work. But before you commit to imagine, you have to commit to Jesus. Now well, Some of us, we hear that. And we think committing to Jesus and we think, yeah, there are people in here who don't know Jesus. They need to commit to Jesus. And You're right, they do. If you're here and you've never committed your life to Jesus, you need to commit your life to Jesus. You, you need to trust in Jesus because apart from Jesus, you get punishment. But with Jesus, you get grace. With Jesus, you get eternity. But committing to Jesus is also for the Christian as well. That you, you would commit to love him. You, you, would, you would commit to follow him. You would commit to see him work and to see him act. You would commit to the gospel that your, your heart would never get over the gospel. That you would commit to, remind, to preaching the gospel to yourself every day because that is the great need that you have. That's the great need that I have. And as we commit to Jesus, then we would commit to the Imagine Initiative. Then we would commit to seeing Jesus do the work that he's done in our hearts, but we would commit to wanting to see him do this work in the hearts and in the lives of our neighborhoods and of our communities and of the nations. That's what this is an invitation to. And so, we I said this last week, believe it with all my heart that that anytime we study God's word, anytime we read God's word, that it, it demands a response. That we are always responding to God's word. And so we're gonna, we're gonna respond to what the Lord is doing, what he has been doing here this morning. And so I hope that if you're a part of Central, if this is your church home, if this is your church family, then you've taken time to pray through and to, to think through and to consider what does a commitment to imagine look like? Maybe even right now where, where you're sitting, maybe you, you've been praying through and thinking through and what would the Lord, how would the Lord have you?